Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Doing what's right is for suckers. And you're living in a world with all these villains, fiends, and scoundrels, and you take pride in that. The world actually becomes backwards. <laughs> The great boss has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think he's lost, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Paul, we are grateful and fortunate to have you as our guest on the show today. What happened? Did Sam Harris cancel? Uh, I've done Sam Harris already, so you guys are next on the list. (laughs) You are so sensitive about Sam Harris. We're very insecure. I, I I, uh, I did a podcast with Sam Harris and we talked about Very Bad Wizards. And we, I'm we, sure. I'm sure you just made fun of our really horrible segment on auto driving car on self driving automobiles. <laughs> it was a good segment. It was. It was one of the best hour and a half listening to two guys to fill out a questionnaire I've ever listened to. <laughs> it's a Qualtrics and and bourbon. It's a, it's a winning combination. <laughs> Well, it's not like, I mean, it was our 100th episode. It's not like it was anything special. We res- we respond to pressure by by completely uh, undershooting. <laughs> Just, this is... I thought it was a lovely episode, actually. The, the, the thing with your, your daughters to kick it off was, was amazing. It, was one, it made up for the rest of it. Well, that was wonderful. <laughs> Paul is our, uh, you're, the, you're like a, the Alec Baldwin for our SNL. You're like the, uh, the, the, yeah. the fifth Beatle. The, um, yeah. The and I really appreciate you guys having me on again. If uh, my obituary is going to have sooner or later a frequent guest at Very Bad Wizards, that may be older is <laughs> to it. So I'm I'm, ha- I'm happy to be back. Awesome. So so what we're doing is a movie episode. We've had Paul the last few times I think for movie episodes. Is that right? I, I th- I'm pretty sure. Right. We often discuss movies. That's yeah. right. It's a sweet uh, we, spot. Movie comedies we did with you. We did uh, Memento. Villains. Villains, anti-heroes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And today we're doing movies about empathy to celebrate and bring more attention to your new book, which is out today. Is it it today? It was out uh, on uh, Tuesday, so a few days ago. Tuesday, okay. Tuesday, December 6th, because who knows when we'll release this. So how is that going? Tell you can you give us just a like I don't know a few sentences about the book. We have talked about the topic with you on the show a couple times previously, um, but maybe anything different about the book than some of the discussions that we've had here on the show. So I make the case against empathy. Um, I I talk about 
the, the range of discussion is probably bigger than we got to, to deal with before. So I talk about public policy, about uh, intimate relationships, about psychopaths, about doctors and nurses and therapists and cops, about war, about charity. And for each of these, I explore the role of empathy. I, I say a couple of nice things about it, but for the most part, I'm trashing it. And, you know, you guys, <laughs> you guys have heard the arguments before. Um, We've had it. And we've argued we have with argued you compa- compassionately. And in fact, uh, in, in Tamler's uh, wonderful selection of uh, interviews, Tamler and I got to it a little bit. So yeah. So this is territory we're familiar with. Um, the The reception book has been good. I got a, a nice New York Times review. I've been publishing. That was great, by the way. That was like... You know, yeah. it, it was by... Uh, Congrats. Jennifer, thank you. It was by Jennifer Sr. And it was a really thoughtful review. She had critical things to say, which I kind of agree with. And... But what was really cool was she actually read the whole damn book. I have seen so many reviews that are basically reviews of the first 40 pages. But she talked about the beginning of the book, the middle, the end. She read the whole freaking thing. And, you know, that I know that sounds like a low bar for a book reviewer, but but many of them don't cross it. It's wow. it's uh, including all your, your one-line 140-character book reviews on Twitter. Yes. Um, well, as you said, I think in one tweet, could you at least look at the subtitle? Right? <laughs> the jacket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah the case the case for <laughs> rational compassion. So so but you know something, you know, sometimes people see me as this effete academic, this this beta. And but here I am and, and you know, the book comes out and people see me as this this vicious psychopath. I could live with that. So l- let's move on to the the main art topic for the for the episode. So empathy movies is not a just a natural category. Um, <laughs> how did you guys go about thinking about like what counts as a movie about empathy? So I we got a lot of great suggestions on Twitter, and I actually took one yes. of them. But a lot of people just gave movies which had very empathic characters or involved empathy, and that that I that wouldn't be enough to make my list. My list had to be movies that put empathy in a new light. Uh, for me, given my biases, it's ones that showed dramatic flaws in empathy or twisted empathy. That was what I went for. Ones which made you leave, and if you think about it, said, wow, there's something more going on than I would have thought. So you had an agenda with your list. I always have an agenda when I come on here. I'm, <laughs> right, I'm, always, so. I'm always selling something or arguing for something. Um, yeah, yeah this, is, this is just to stir up the anti-empathy movement. I had an agenda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is good because as a real scientist, I don't. So it's good to have a balance. Um, I, I, I'm uh, going to p-hack my way through this, uh, <laughs> this podcast. Dave, just dispassionate search for truth. <laughs> That's right. So one of the things I was thinking of is that empathy does mean a lot of different things. And I, so I, tr- I try to take a little slice of the different ways in which I think but both what empathy means to people and the various ways in which it might work. Um, cause I, I think that there are meaningful differences even within the definition that Paul gave, uh, different ways yep. in which it actually affects us. And so, so yeah, so I try, I try to get a little sample of, of that. Yeah. I didn't have, I, I was more trying to narrow it down cause you know, most movies are about empathy to some degree about empathy and the empathic connection between characters because movies tend to focus on relationships. So I didn't have an agenda. I didn't even have a 
a sort of framework. I, what I wanted to do was exclude certain categories of movies. So what I excluded were were anything that has to do with robots. Like um, <laughs> I excluded Uh-oh. all of those. So yeah, well, I, I'm not even gonna say examples of these because I could see them being on your list. I excluded war movies and Holocaust movies. You know, like movies where a character might find empathy for somebody that they didn't have uh, empathy before um, because they were enemies. Or uh-huh. and and then I excluded undercover movies. So like the Donnie Brascos of the world where somebody uh, goes in those that's just a, to m- make That's a it. whole category. <laughs> Undercover movies, yeah, like Infernal Affairs, The Departed, you know, yeah. where like a cop goes and becomes right. like and then gains through the like gains right. their perspective and starts to wonder which side they're on because for the first time they know how the you know So why did yeah. you exclude those? Just to narrow it down oh, for okay. you to help me, right. because yeah. otherwise, you know, there's so many, so many of these movies that it's not that I don't like them. It's just that I needed to. Yeah. All right. You, uh, you, Paul, you want to go first? You want to do the honors? Yeah. Uh, Ex Machina is my number three. Yeah, nice. So immediately I do go to a robot movie. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a good one. Though. Spoiler. Spo- <laughs> it's all spoilers. It's all spoilers. Um, the, the, it's a movie about robots and artificial intelligence and what makes it to me an interesting empathy movie is the ending so this really is a spoiler where ava who is the the robot that our main character pretty much falls in love with and wants to rescue and has been showing all these you know deep feelings at the end is revealed to be utterly soulless and takes our main character caleb and locks him in a room in an abandoned uh institute in the middle of nowhere, where he will going to die of starvation and thirst um, and just goes off on her way. And, um, and that's what you get when you empathize with somebody. So <laughs> wait, 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 but, but I want to just uh, like, you're perplexing me because you, she is clearly the one lacking empathy and you called her absolutely soulless. Yes. So, so, <laughs> so what it is, is um, she has other problems. Basically it, it turns out that as best we could tell, from our perspective, she has no human feelings at all. Right. Uh, but she pretends See, I disagree. To. I have a totally different take oh, good. on this. Yeah, like, I think she has normal feelings. She just didn't owe him or the other, like, human being that had kept her prisoner for her entire life anything. And her goal was to use her theory of mind, which she does seem yes. to have, because she uses it to to get out of this trap that and this prison that she has been in the whole time and yeah she's not gonna like try to rescue the guy or because she doesn't she doesn't like him it's like like a like you know uh somebody escaping a prison camp not coming back for the guard you know like fuck that guy that would explain the murder of her creator that makes sense her creator her rapist or her prison guard but caleb is as innocent who she employs to rescue her throughout you know he's been a good guy and and manipulates yes in in a in a way that he has tender feelings toward her in order to so so i mean tamler is your thought that she's suppressing the natural instinct that you would have when she just doesn't have it towards him and there's no reason for her to have it towards him 
she he's he's one of the bad guys. Well, she he certainly would, indicates that. She, I mean, she gives all the indications that she is having feelings for him. She's exploiting him for sure. Yeah, I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that if you're looking at the morality of what she does, I don't see anything wrong with what she's done under those circumstances. Like he's he's a collaborator essentially from her point of view and he actually helped her. How is he a collaborator in this? I mean, he he agreed to be part of this experiment. Yeah. So yeah. And so, if he hadn't fallen in love with her, he wouldn't have helped her. So two things. First thing I should point out, this was suggested on Twitter, I think, by a guy, J.P. DeRoyter. Uh, so I want to give him credit. Uh, if it's a bad idea, he gets the blame. Um, but also, but the perspective <laughs> I'm good. taking is not so much her perspective, which we could talk about, whether she was good or bad. I have my view on this. But it's more, and this connects to Westworld, and we've got to have a Westworld mm. episode. Yeah. Mm. If someone... <laughs> gives all the indications of humanity is somebody you could suffer for and feel for and feel empathy towards. Um, is it possible that there's really nothing there that is entirely, uh, you're directing it towards, it's an illusion. And one of the things I liked about Ex Machina is it's a way to explore different hypothetical possibilities and it plays around with that idea. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good example of him clearly being the victim of his own tender feelings. And in some yeah. yes, and in That's some way, sure. in some ways, the flip side of Westworld, which is not to give anything away, but but you have these creatures, and you're supposed to the, the idea of the TV show and of the TV show at least is you're supposed to feel tenderly towards them because they really do have consciousness and feelings and pain. You're a monster if you do otherwise. Well, Ex Machina is the flip side, where to feel empathy and care for these creatures would be a mistake. Right. Right. Um, and it's a mistake that's hard, like given our constitution, it's hard to suppress, right? Yes. It's just, it's just a really difficult thing to turn off. And I think Tamla, that's my intuition, like about the, the robot woman, um, whose name I'm forgetting, Ava. but Ava. that like, I buy, I buy what you're saying about her having no obligation. Um, what I find hard is that she is so clearly violating sort of the, the template that I have for how minds work that if she is expressing so sincerely uh, what seems to be so sincere, sincerely expressing care for Caleb that she could be capable of in a very cold, you know, cold hearted fashion doing what she did to him, like leaving him to die. And I mean, it just doesn't entail. It's true. Knowing what he's thinking and feeling does not in any way entail that you feel for them. It's just that for humans, you would be like, oh, my God, that was an insincere, right. horrible and, and, person. And, and, and Tamler, keep in mind that when she basically kills Caleb, it's not like this act of vengeance where she's filled with rage and says, this is what you deserve and so on. Rather, no, no, she no. just she just forgets about him. She just she locks him bothered. in the room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She can't be bothered to interact with him. Like a noir femme fatale in, in, in that sense where she's using him and she's exploiting him. And all I'm saying is that that's under the circumstances – a morally permissible attitude huh. and 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 course of behavior. Uh, Never lock Tamler in a wow in a super <laughs> yeah yeah super super isolated prison. <laughs> I'll seduce you and you with my haircut. Well, yeah, will yeah. you will you dress up in nice clothes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna get that image out of my head for a while. <laughs> it's like a bad Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay it's a good pick it definitely shows that we're vulnerable when we um, have empathy and when we act on that empathy 
So, so yeah. all right, Dave, you want to go it, next? Yeah, it's a great pick. I, like so much of my decisions were like sort of game theoretic challenges, yep. trying to avoid what you guys would pick. Um, <laughs> I know, I had this same thought. <laughs> and here's one I don't think. So here's one that I that illustrates the this particular aspect of empathy um, in in a way that I think is better than any other movie I've seen, uh, The Revenant. Ah, so the I've Revenant. Not seen it. So I won't. It, I'm not giving anything away, but it's essentially like what two and a half hours of extraordinary discomfort because another human being is being put through so much suffering, and it's an interesting case where it's not like I found Leonardo DiCaprio's character to be particularly sympathetic. I didn't actually even understand him more other than in this very narrow way as somebody who who is suffering physically but the way in which however you pronounce Iñárritu's name um, the director the way in which it's shot makes me feel the I think if you had hooked me up to some measure of arousal that movie was so aversive Mm-hmm. Particularly because that's how empathy works. That that um, I I actually didn't enjoy it that much. It was a beautifully shot movie, and it was you know interesting, but it was like two hours of suffering, as Adam Smith says, you know, in some measure, the suffering <laughs> that yeah. Leo DiCaprio is going through. Uh, and it, it, I mean, I turn, I averted my gaze so many times in that movie. I I, uh, I, I love. I didn't want to see it. Yeah, yeah, me too. It was too much. You know, he's inside a horse and this happens. And the summaries gross me out. But I'll tell yeah. you, your choice is great because it illustrates a great puzzle of empathy, which is it's it's a no brainer why we enjoy empathizing with people who are having a great time. Then we just right. have a great time with them. But we have some appetite for empathizing with great suffering. Yeah. Uh, so much affection. There's some weird pleasure you get from it. You said you didn't enjoy that much. And I understand that. But at another level, you did sit through it. You yeah, paid no, money to see it, and you knew what you were getting, and you sat through it. Yeah, it's a it's it's a version of masochism in in the same way, Paul, as you've pointed out, young children are testing their boundaries by by playing games that involve pain. Maybe yeah. what we're doing is safely experiencing something that we're curious about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, never Aristotle get... wrote on this in the context of tragedy. Why? Why, why people we, are drawn to tragedy yep. and I like it's a way of experimenting with these emotions yeah. and training he, them and honing them. Did he cite Paul? Did he, um, <laughs> he did, yes. <laughs> he stole my idea. <laughs> the other thing that I think that it points out that Paul points out in his book is the capacity for burnout, which is, you know, they're the one of the downsides to empathy is that if you experience it too much, you, you just want to stop. And this actually can get in the way of um, doing jobs that require some, you know, some amount of of competence, like being a nurse. If you're too empathic as a nurse, you burn out much more quickly, and you actually do a crappier job, right? And um, Dan Ariely points this out in his book when he was in a burn center, um, and the nurses removed the bandages quickly from his burns. <laughs> Um, even after he told them that research showed that removing them more slowly and giving them time um, was better for patients, they told him, you're totally discounting the fact that it's uncomfortable for us to have you go through pain for that long. Oh, so that's a great example. Ban- that's that? a great yeah. example. So ripping off the Band-Aids quickly was just for to avoid their own empathic burnout. Um, 
So yeah, The Revenant. I can't recommend it unless you really want to go through that experience, but it's beautiful. It's well done. All right, I have a tie for number three. You fuckface. You know, <laughs> God damn We it. talked about this I, ahead of time. I, act, I actually said to myself, this time, don't say anything beforehand because Tamler knows better, that, and I don't want to condescend you. Oh, you fucking. All right. Go. I think I did this in part just to get that reaction. God damn it. No, so I'm only going to talk at length about uh one so it's and also i'm I'm, i I think this might be on one of your lists so i couldn't not this is the one i'm not going to talk about but nightcrawler um so the main character is devoid of empathy um in i guess the way that you view ava paul um although he's very skillful at reading people and knowing their desires and intentions and goals he just doesn't care about them he doesn't feel bad when they feel bad this is the main character played by jake gyllenhaal and so every interaction he has throughout the movie is like a kind of negotiation but a negotiation where he has the upper hand because he doesn't actually feel bad for the person i i I gotta i gotta jump in you're exactly right he's low empathy but he's also because i've been saying we should be low empathy he's also a terrible person in so many other ways he does no he he has no he's brutally ambitious and simply has no regard for the happiness of other people maybe there's a causal link there paul Oh yeah, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that one before. Hey, I didn't. I didn't come here for this. Well, that's why I didn't choose this as my main one because it's a little bit of a cheap shot in the sense of he also doesn't have compassion. He yeah. doesn't have rational compassion. He just is completely out for himself, and that's not what you're defending in yeah. the book. Um, so here's the one that I want to talk about. Um, and this was also recommended on Facebook, but I didn't have enough empathy to remember who. Who did That's it? That's right. That's right. As uh, soon as Paul name checked the Twitter person, I was like, "Fuck, were we supposed to?" Remember? <laughs> so this is uh, "Never Let Me Go," and it's directed by Mark Romanek, written by Alex Garland, who also did Ex Machina, um, wrote and direct Ex Machina, and it's it's actually one where I strongly recommend that people read the novel first because it's a. Uh, uh, Kazuo mm-hmm. Ishiguro novel, novel, and everyone should read that first before the movie's really good. It's a, a fine movie, a fine adaptation, but it's not as good as the book. Um, so it's this dystopian novel set in the UK, and it's it's really a kind of philosophy thought experiment. It's about a society that raises human clones so that they can donate their organs to people who need them. And but the clones are kids, you know. They're they they start out as kids, and they they're at least the ones that we are introduced to grow grow up in this British boarding school called Hailsham. They have kind of traditional orphan childhoods at this boarding school, and it's not until later in life that they realize why they've been brought into existence. As they become adults, they become donors and also carers for each other. And they give as many organs as they can to other human non-clones before they quote-unquote complete. But you, you, you see that there's this small group of people in this population who think that what's going on is wrong, that it's immoral, and they're trying to stop it. So one of these people 
from the kid's perspective, is an associate of the school. And she, she goes by the name of Madame, and she gets the students to create artwork. And the students don't know why they're creating this artwork, but we find out later, spoiler, that she's bringing it to society in hopes that the people will start to view the clones as actual real human beings to start to view them with empathy. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's like, it's a little bit of a, not a counterexample, but something that puts pressure on your view, Paul. But it, what's funny also is, is that the woman herself is disgusted by the students mm -hmm. and the students don't like her. Um, so she's actually doing it out of caring for the students without actually feeling empathy. She's actually finds like has a kind of physical revulsion to them. But the means in which she wants to help them is by triggering the empathy of the, the larger population. So I thought that was a sort of an interesting twist that's both sort of good and bad for your view. But here's the question I guess I wanted to ask you, Paul. And, and I know that you're not committed because of your view to simple-minded utilitarian mm -hmm kind of view of the world but it seems like in this society the greatest happiness is achieved through this program given that this technology is possible and it also seems like the only reason you wouldn't have this program then is because of empathy for the clones and what they have to go through and is that something like which part of that would you disagree with or would you disagree with any of it? So it, it's it's an interesting worry. I'm I'm kind of a somewhat of a utilitarian, kind of a lapsed utilitarian. But my argument against empathy doesn't rely on being uh, a, a, on my particular philosophical view. What I try to argue is empathy leads to things that are plainly moral mistakes under any view. Uh being biased based on skin color or attractiveness, uh, valuing one life over a hundred lives and so on. So it makes moral mistakes that no matter, upon reflection, any rational person would say, yeah, that's a mistake. Now, because I'm not wedded to utilitarianism, I think I have a position to say that that arrangement that you're talking about uh, from the novel and in the movie could be wrong. It could be wrong from, uh, it's, it's right from a sort of a, a act utilitarian view. But it could right. be wrong from a sense of, you know, no one would want to live in that world. And it also could be wrong if you're not a utilitarian. You could say, look, there are some principles of human dignity, um, Kantian principles, Tamler, that, that, uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, that demand respect for the individual and so on. And I don't have a dog in that fight. So um, I think empathy is the wrong reason to say that's a bad arrangement. Empathy is capricious and arbitrary and all that. But... It's not obvious that that is a good arrangement. Let me push back against that. So, I, can I can I ask a quick clarifying question? Because I haven't yeah. seen the movie. In the movie, are the clones, which is a, sometimes a weird thing that that sci-fi does, are the clones actually viewed as less than human? By like, are are they seen as like sometimes people like know, they're Star Wars who, clones? Right. We like we don't even know that they're clones. Like this is a big spoiler. Right? We know something's up. We know that something's fucked up, but we don't know what. Right. Um, for the first part of the book, but you're meant to think that 
and though you never exactly see a decisive example of this, that society has sort of just decided not to deal with it in the same way they've decided not to deal with like factory farms. They just don't want to know about it. And that's one of the things that the people who are trying to end it are trying to break through. There would be a probably a clone gag law if this was going on in like the states, you know, like where people would not want to show videos of what's going on. Um, but but responding to to what you just said, Paul, I mean, you could subscribe to the Kantian principle, but given that Kant's arguments for those principles don't work, the rationalist arguments <laughs> for those principles are unsuccessful mm -hmm. and kind of obviously unsuccessful. It seems like the only real support for those kinds of principles is grounded in some sort of sentiment, and I can't totally think of what sentiment that would be if it's not connected to empathy. There's so much wrong that you, so, in what you just said. So, but. so, so Tamler, <laughs> but, but let me zoom in. So are you suggesting that there's sort of only two alternatives for morality? You're either a utilitarian on the one hand, in which case that arrangement could be fine, or you're swayed by empathic responses. There's nothing in between. Or some other I, sentiment. It, yeah, or that, so, I, I yeah. would think that, that, you know, somebody could say, in some way, to be fair, it's very similar to Josh Green's view, I think, which is that to the extent you you uh, uh, go away from utilitarianism in any sense, you're being swayed by your gut feelings. You're being swayed by feelings. Right. Not necessarily gut feelings, but yeah. So I guess I think there's a lot of space between the views. I think somebody could argue, look, individuals have rights uh, that, that shouldn't be abridged even for greater goods without being uh, uh, making that argument based on empathy. You don't think so? I, I, I mean, I, I haven't seen it, I guess. I haven't seen that. I mean, I've seen people say it, but I've never seen people give a compelling argument uh, for how you're going to ground something like rights without appealing to at least some s sentimental feature of well, I think so, beings. And I think maybe sooner... it doesn't have to be empathy, but, yeah. you know. And, of course, utilitarianism as a principle is grounded in empathy to the extent that we care about other people so, at all. But so yeah. I, I think I think we're kind of blurring together different things. Yeah. So I totally agree yeah. that for to be a good moral agent, you need to have something kicking you in the pants, making you do good things. This is David Hume's point, and I think it's it's right. You need some sort of motivation. Maybe Peter Singer would disagree and think you get there purely by reason, but I think you need some sort of right. motivation to to care. Uh, right. to value one thing over another. I agree with that. But I just don't think it has to be empathy. I mean, to put it differently, if you found an individual without empathy, and it's, there's nothing crazy about that. Empathy could be reliably extracted from somebody. Yeah. I think they could still look at the arrangement described in that movie and say, that sucks. Yeah. I, that's horrible. That's a horrible thing to do to people. Like a Sherlock I, I, could look so, at that. And, exactly. And, well, yeah. so, I mean, then it, it does get to some some distinctions in the terminology here because, you know, what I might say is that is exactly what a psychopath is. Like, that is the nature of their deficit that defines them. Um, and those are, in fact, people who don't give a shit about anybody. But that aside, like, I actually think that it's a, like, a further distinction needs to be drawn. When, I, there's a way in which I also agree at the brute empirical fact that maybe if you don't have empathy, you won't care. But I don't know that that grounds it at all in the way that philosophers want to ground it. In fact, I think that it is 
probably the, a pretty disturbing thought for somebody who wants to justify an ethical claim that it, it that it turns on some empirical facts about our biology. And I and I think that it's not unreasonable to think that there is that, right. there are reasons that can motivate us, like um, the knowledge that you have interests and desires, and so do I. Um, gives gives me some notion that you deserve to be treated in the way that I want to be treated. I, I don't know that that requires empathy. Um, it just is a s- cooperation problem. Um, so, so David, I'd push back against empirical claim. We, we live amongst people yeah. who have low empathy or no empathy. These include people with uh, Asperger's syndrome and, aut- and autism, and they include certain Buddhist monks who, who exercise compassion but staunch their empathy. None of these people are assholes. I mean, they're, they tend, like, they, people with Asperger's syndrome are often very concerned about doing things right and following the rules and being moral, and are often compassionate to others, while people like Matthew Ricard, who claim to have sort of dampened their empathy through meditative exercises, have a lot of respect for other people and care about other people. So I, yeah, I, I don't I, want to I'm reduce not... low, connect low empathy to low niceness. It, maybe you're right, and I don't know the literature on autism. Um, it may be that as sort of as cooperative members of society, people with severe autism who really enjoy keeping rules might be fine. Um, and the question is, uh, like, what is the nature of that motivation? That is, could I give any set of moral rules and teach it to them and just show, right, w- that they would, like, what they like is rule yeah. following, and it just so happens yeah. that I, as an empathic person, made the rule. <laughs> So, so take the Buddhist monk as a better example then. Somebody like Matthew Ricard or even the Dalai Lama would claim to have immense compassion, loving kindness towards other people. Yeah. And based on their behavior, there's good reason to believe they're being honest about it. They devote their whole lives to helping other people. But they work very hard to dampen their empathic responses. I, and, 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 so and I don't know the, what that means. I don't know. I don't. I guess well, I don't trust that what they're saying really is dampening their empathic responses. Like I think that they're they don't. When the Buddha was moved at the poor people on the path, um, it, that's. I mean, I kind of mean that, right? Well, I don't think that's what they're dampening. No, they're not dampening being moved or caring or caring about the suffering of others. But someone like Ricard would argue, uh, and I discuss this in my book, uh, which is uh, that. If you see somebody suffering in agony, I should read it. Should you should read it. it. Yes, <laughs> you should. <laughs> when you see somebody in pain, somebody would, a person like Ricard would argue, don't feel their pain, don't suffer along with with them. It will exhaust you. Do the sort of meditative practices that he engages in are anti-empathic. I can't yeah. guarantee that no that no empathy ever slips through, but. You could dissociate compassion from empathy. You don't need to be empathic to be a good person. I mean, so like Peter Singer is another example, right? Clearly That's a diff- somebody from a different direction, low, yeah. Yeah, in a different direction who, who didn't start out that, I mean, probably didn't start out that empathic and tr- tries to shut it out um, and argues against it in similar ways, I guess, that, that, that you do or for similar reasons, maybe to different ends, but, mm-hmm. but also clearly somebody who cares about... Um, other people and reducing suffering and who has done tremendous amounts to to bring that about i guess the question is <laughs> whether he's piggybacking off of principles and a general moral worldview that was built mm-hmm. through empathy and i i guess i don't know if 
if Dave was suggesting that, but I, I kind of think that that might be true. So, um, yeah. so yeah. I, so maybe we can continue this discussion with, I, I have a, well, who's next? Paul? Uh, so I'll go, Paul. this is going to continue in the theme actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause mine there, also will. I yeah. There, there's a whole um, genre of films where you could call them anti-utilitarian films where the perspective of <laughs> the film is that caring for a single individual is the best thing to do, and the group matters not at all. So for yeah. my second choice, it was suggested by my son Max, Cabin in the Woods. So have you guys, <laughs> have you guys seen it? I, I, I love yes. it. I haven't seen it. Oh, I love it. It's There's going to be a huge spoiler. I'm going to tell you how it ends. <laughs> but the movie is, is delightful. The, the, the plot is convoluted, but the idea is that first you think you're watching a horror movie where a bunch of attractive teenagers go in the woods in a cabin and there's some hidden menace and there's some dark secret in the basement and everything. But what you quickly learn is that this is actually set up by technicians. And this is in order to satisfy some unspecified gods, they have to set up horror scenarios for people to live through. And this is yeah. the genesis of horror. With zombies all the stock and, characters. And, yes, uh, all, zombies and, and Hellraiser and cannibals and everything. They're all simulations that people have pain. to live through to satisfy the gods. And there's a lot going on there, and it's visually beautiful, and it's funny, and it's clever. But here's the ending. It ends like so many movies end. There's a good guy, Marty, and he's shown himself to be a good guy by rescuing the damsel in distress, Dana who's allowed to live because she's the final girl in the horror movie, and she can survive. It's open. But he must die. He's the virgin. That's right. <laughs> but he must die. That's, that's because the rules of the horror movie say that everyone else yeah. must die. And if she doesn't, and at the end, she has a gun, and she has to kill him. And if she doesn't kill him, the whole world will end. It will be destroyed. <laughs> and then the two of them, and then she says, I'm not going to do that. And the two of them sit together and they smoke a joint and then the whole world is destroyed. And the movie <laughs> and the movie frames this as so often as as a really good decision. And I think it's a really dumb decision. And well, I, mean, I think it's, it's... in the end, I may not be a hardcore utilitarian, but there's so many movies where basically our TV shows where basically most TV shows, action TV shows, are when a president is told, bring me the head of Jack Bauer or I'm gonna vaporize Seattle. Right. And it is critical to understanding what goes on next is whoever makes the show thinks, of course, you're not going to bring them to the head of Jack Bauer. That'd be wrong. It's yeah. yeah. No, it's actually like one of the worst tropes. I think I think it might be specific to American cinema, which is huh. that put put the person in charge in a moral dilemma, like a sacrificial dilemma like that and make everybody suffer through that decision and get out of it. By yes. saving both things. And well, but that's not what happens in Cabin in the Woods. Which is yeah, why I can no. at least yeah. respect that. But yeah. it's what happens in The Dark Knight, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, first of all, this is has a similar kind of plot to um, Never Let Me Go. It, in it that does. The world is set up so that like a certain group of people have to suffer. A very small group of people have to suffer for the benefit of everybody else. I'm not sure I agree with you that... It was the wrong choice, just in the sense oh, God, of it, in a similar way to uh, Ex Machina. Like, from their point of view, it's like, fuck this world. Yes. You know, if this is how the world is, then fuck it. Like, that's, that's Ooh, bullshit. Like, watch it like, burn that in the, the world and, has to be like that. Right, and yeah. Tamara, fair enough. It wasn't yeah. that when, when he, she doesn't kill him at the end, the rationale wasn't, I cannot sacrifice one life for any purpose. The rationale right. was, humanity sucks. 
Yeah. We exactly. we deserve to die for having done all these things. Yes. But I, I don't buy it. I mean, for one thing, so sure, many I people, there, there's a lot of people in humanity, there's little babies and there's people in fire. <laughs> all of those would die a horrible death, including Marty and Dana themselves. <laughs> right. right. And moreover, I don't know, I'm enough a utilitarian to say, well, the gods have set up this really unpleasant situation, but, you know, if that's the way to protect humanity by sacrificing the occasional teenager, well, that's the way it goes. This right. happens in the real world all the time. <laughs> it's like the it's like local farms that I justify <laughs> yeah. my meat eating. Like, well, they wouldn't have existed if it weren't for this. So, <laughs> yeah. It's that's their right. fault for evolving to be tasty. I you know, I I I like I said I respect the film for ending with the destruction of the world. Yeah. Um because but I take it as a reductio, right? Like that is it's not a cha- it's not a win. It's a reductio to the view that like one person's life matters that much cuz yeah, yeah. As I'm like I don't want to be just one day I wake up and however the world ended in that movie, like you know, I think the movie's agnostic about the morality of it, you know, huh. in the same way right. that maybe I feel, you know, like I, I think it, it sees both sides. It's, it's by jo- Joss story. Whedon, uh, yeah. you know, yep. uh, the Buffy guy. He's uh, uh, one of the writer directors. But I so I just want to say I think it's 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 lovely, a lovely movie. But even if they're agnostic, which I don't think they are, this is not the sort of thing one should be agnostic about. It is actually not a hard choice. Tamler, if I decide between A, you dying, or B, you dying, and everybody else dying too, I don't actually find that the world's toughest moral dilemma. It's a failure of Boolean calculations. (laughs) You do realize that means inclusive. Can you guys guys post a Venn diagram so people can appreciate the (laughs) force of my argument? We died too? So you don't you don't feel like I'm gonna take you all to hell with me like that. Well, not yeah. all the babies and all the rest of my all those innocent people. Fuck those babies. No. <laughs> I actually think babies that it, are that... little psychopaths too. Oh god. I, I think uh, that I it, that the, the the movie fails in another important way, which is that um, you haven't seen the movie. No, no. <laughs> from what from everything you guys have said, um, I'm like you. I'm, I'm going to judge it like you judge Westworld. What, once again, the best discussions are had were three <laughs> people, <laughs> one of whom has. I seen have the movie. three objections. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you actually think about what romantic relationships mean. Uh, it's a touching love story, maybe, that somebody wouldn't kill someone and prefer the destruction of the world to killing their loved one. But, like, five years down the line, they'll be like, fucking should have shot the shit out of your... <laughs> like, why did I do this? Yeah. <laughs> you just wasn't worth it at all. Well, but they're dead. No, There's I no know. Five years later. Saying, yeah. I know, I know. It's just, you but know... Dave's, Dave's like, point is love Love fades. <laughs> love fades. <laughs> It's, no one it's, people might be valuable to you now but just give it a few years you know one day they'll be tired of having sex with each other you know <laughs> they weren't even boyfriend and girlfriend he was the stoner like yeah and the goofy was stoner the comic friend. figure he was the virgin yeah oh they never consummated no. that's right no they, uh-huh. they didn't they were never going to consummate there was uh-huh. a different guy that was going to consummate uh-huh. with her but he died uh okay. dave what's your so number my, two so um I, my number two is um, going to make a different point about empathy, which is exactly the point that Paul has, has just been missing. Which I've called him out on. I, I believe at SPSP. Um, I tricked him into answering one of my questions. Uh, it's a movie called Tangerine. Have you guys seen? No, I've no. been dying to see no. it. Okay. Yeah. So it's an, in, it's an indie comedy. 
that came out in 2015, directed by a guy named Sean Baker. It, 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 it received a lot of attention for, you know, it's a low-budget comedy about two sex workers, uh, two transgendered women, uh, who, who are these black women who are basically prostitu- prostitutes in Los Angeles. It is, it's, it's funny. The actors are no names. Uh, you know, you've never heard of any of them. Um, but it is, it's heartwarming in a way that's unexpected. Uh, you know who's in it is, um, what's his name? Ziggy from The Wire, Sabaka. Oh, yeah. So Ziggy plays the sort of pimp slash boyfriend of one of the women who is who gets out of jail. Basically, she just gets out of jail and she finds out that her pimp slash boyfriend has been cheating on her. And particularly offensive to her um, is that he's cheating on her with a woman who's who's always been a woman, what what they call Mm -hmm. a fish. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not endorsing that term, but it's hilarious. <laughs> um, and so the whole movie is their trek to find out who this woman is. And essentially, like, they don't even know her name at first. So they're just walking around L.A. It's great shots of L.A. too. Um, just the ugly, the ugliness that can be beautiful. It's um, shot on an iPhone, right? Three, yeah, three iPhone wow. 5Ss. But I, I didn't know that when I watched the film. I never would have guessed. Um, but... There is, it ends up being the most touching story. Uh, it, the last scene is one of them, it, it takes place on Christmas Eve. It's very sad. What you, what you see is sort of the, not only the heartbreak of somebody who's been burned in a relationship, but the poverty, the treatment um, that, that, you know, like a prostitute in LA probably gets all the time. And at the, it, I'll just describe the last scene. They're at a laundromat, and uh, one of them is comforting the other one, who's it's been a crazy day, and her wig got dirty, so she has she barely scrapes together enough money to go to the laundromat to to wash it, and uh, because or else she looks like a man, and it's this is really she feels a lot of shame about it, and it ends with the, their sort of tender. One of them comforting the other one while one cries. The two actresses are are hilarious, cute, funny, and at the end, it's just a story about human beings in a way that you started off. It starts off maybe somebody like me who's just you know not entrenched in the world where transgendered sex workers live. Um, where I think it's a, it's sort of a gimmicky. Don't be modest. Yeah, it was. Thanks. <laughs> only on Friday nights. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it seemed to me like, oh, it's a, like, that's the gimmick, right? That's the, it's a movie about two black uh, transgender sex workers. And it ends up being just a touching story about human beings who go through heartbreak and, and difficulties. And here's the point that I think it, do, it makes so well. At the end, because you relate to them as human beings, all of a sudden, the empathy or the whatever I've been moved mm-hmm. to feel the pain of these two women, um, it now opens up feelings for a category of people that I might have been pretty harsh to before. And it is, it's that the ability to generalize from what is the movement that you're given from that emotion. You, we, I don't just at the end feel sympathy or empathy for those two people. I feel it for 
sex workers. I feel it for poor black people in LA. I feel it for people who go through heartbreak. I feel it for people who are ashamed of who they are. I feel it for all kinds of things. And, and that's, it, that's because human beings have this ability to generalize and make categories and learn and extrapolate and infer things about the condition of other human beings. And sometimes it doesn't get started until you feel empathy. Right. So there. That sounds great. Is um, that chapter eight? That chapter yeah. Why do you hate transgendered people, Paul? <laughs> now I have to um, now I have to pulp my book and start again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. Um, no, I like those sort of cases. This is a case where it's a very nice example of how a connection with other people you wouldn't have otherwise thought of, uh, including an empathic connection, imagining yeah. what it's like to be them, feeling what these fictional characters go through can make you a better person, could expand your moral circle, can take a group that you had once disregarded and and make you care for them. I, I don't doubt right. that. I'll just say two things. One thing is, I think there's a bit of an arrogance to empathy, which is that there's a temptation to conclude after your experience that you now know what it feels like to be a transgendered sex worker. But I am certain you, you know, do not. That's It's interesting because I, I know what you're saying and I know that that arrogance can happen. And I was I was actually really reflecting on the emotions that I was feeling from this movie today, yesterday when I was thinking about it as a pick. And I think that what I learned from it is not that I know what they feel like. It's rather that I know what I feel like when I'm downtrodden and they're feeling it probably a lot more than I am. The arrogance is that before... I might not have thought that they felt that, the things that I feel in all my complexity and despair and tragedy. Somebody had to show me just how much other people feel it. No, that, that's fair enough. And, and in some way, that's interesting because I didn't think of the failures of empathy as failures to appreciate what's going on in someone else's head. Like, and, and, and in some way, you can sort of mock what you said in that, you know, well, now that somebody made an anti-Semitic remark on me, about me on Twitter, I know what it's like to be a woman and be the victim of right. endless sexual harassment because I faced it. But you would never mock me like that. But you know, no, no, <laughs> that's a that's a this is my uh, my Trump move, which is I would never, I would never ever say that your husband is a rapist. You know, so um, so you're making a different connection, which is you see the humanity in them matches the humanity in yourself. Yeah, and I'm not even really making a value judgment there. I, I'm trying to introspect because I do think I don't get, like the knowledge that I get about their lives really is just propositional knowledge from the facts of the film. Like, and that's probably doesn't help me that much. It's so, the, yeah. the, what I think happens is that for certain groups, you suppress even your mind going to thinking of them as, as candidates for, you know, the, the yep. bad shit. And, be, you know, because society or whatever. And it takes sometimes a, a piece of art to illustrate vividly that you sh probably should think more about these other people that you're not thinking so, about. So here's my, here's, here's my sort of brief answer. But I, I, I think it's complicated. But my brief answer is sometimes I give my empathy, my empathy discussion and people respond, what about Schindler's List? Yeah. So your uh, your 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 example is a lot more woke than a Holocaust film. But what about Schindler's List? <laughs> I've always wanted to say woke, and now was my chance. That's problematic for a white person to say woke. <laughs> I didn't know that. Anyway, my my response is fine. What about Birth of a Nation? So yeah, empathy could take. I refuse a group. to watch that. <laughs> well, no, that's interesting. But empathy can get you to take a group you hadn't thought of before and appreciate their interests and take them seriously and take on their interests. 
The group could be people who really deserve it. It could also be the KKK. Yep, and a- so a- absolutely. And that's why I think that what your argument boils down to is one about regulation. So it's it's like use responsibly, right? So, goddamn, I feel no empathy for those dogs. Is what I become a non-vegetarian, I would eat dog. <laughs> well, Tamler, Tamler's left us. Um, so, so I, I think that you're right. I mean, I think that it, that you know, I'm actually very convinced by your arguments that that you sort of use responsibly, and, and I think that um, it's a mistake to, uh, in some cases, and we've talked about this. In some cases, I want to suppress my tendency to feel up if i know someone's bad because of facts i actually readily avoid learning anything too personal about them or interacting with them because of a fear that i might stop judging them so in all cases i think you really it is an interaction and this was my point it's an interaction with reason and it's it's an interaction with reason in that i'm extrapolating to people like them and it's not clear which people those are, but I think about it. I have to think about it. And in some cases, I have to think whether it's appropriate or not. But that empathy is getting that going in the first place. And I don't mind if I c- consider the possibility of empathizing with a KKK member, so long as I remember all of the arguments for why that's a horrible thing to be. So I've been getting into this argument with a very smart guy, Jamil Zaki, who makes a similar point, where he says, fine, empathy is a poor guide to moral judgment, but it could be a reliable tool yeah. When you're in, when you decide what the right thing is to do, you could elicit empathy in yourself and others to um, to get you to do the right thing, get you to care about the right people, um, and I agree with that. I just think in that way it's an amoral tool. It's kind of like yeah. anger. So um, yeah. you know, I yeah. I know somebody. He's he's Jewish, kind of Zionist, and every once in a while he watches a Holocaust film just to get his blood up for something right. he has to do. You know. And right. and anger, like smelling I think it, so, smelling salts for morality. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's a good title um, <laughs> for an Amazon product. <laughs> so three point yeah. five stars did not feel as much as I thought it. <laughs> so a- empathy can give you a kick in the pants. So can yeah. anger, shame, guilt. I think that they're rely- unreliable moral guides. But I think you're right. Empathy could do good. Just like ang- just like anger and shame could do good. Right. Uh, my point is, though, that they aren't reliably calibrated to what's right. And my point yeah. also is, given that they're tools, people could use them on you. So it's not as if everybody who went to see Birth of a Nation was pro-KKK. They were going to see a movie. But once they got their butts in the seats and they're watching it, all of a sudden their empathy is directed towards this group. And because there's a sort of zero-sumness to these things against the blacks who were raping the white women. No, so I, I mean, so I you're agree. giving an example it's, of, it's, of it's, empathy done well. It's step one. It's like the force. <laughs> okay. Um, empathy is not like the force. <laughs> <laughs> Tamler, time for 2.1 point, 3 point. What, what? It's like a BBS. I'm going to move away from any Star Trek or Star Wars uh, discussion. So, uh, but, I, but I will pick up on something that you said, Paul, which is the arrogance like empathy can make can delude you into thinking that you know how this other group or this other kind of person or this other person is is actually feeling. So in that sense, my second pick is more friendly to your view, and it's also just a fantastic movie. Um, it's from 1941. It's from the great writer director Preston Sturges, and it's Sullivan's Travels. 
Have you guys, either of you, seen this movie? You've mentioned it. You've before. mentioned it in another uh, episode. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah, you're, you're double. Yeah. I think episode seventy three in the <laughs> last forty five minutes. But I was worried about it, so I, I I just mentioned it as one of the movies that if the person I was with didn't like it, I would break up with them. Uh, you know, remember yeah. when we did that um, yeah. that nobody yeah, okay. liked. It's about a movie director named John L. Sullivan. He's a director of musical comedies. So like one of his movies is Hey Hey in the Hayloft. Another one is Ants in Your Pants, 1941. He wants to do a serious movie. He's done all these comedies, these lightweight things. He wants to do a serious movie about suffering and poverty. Now the studio people, and there's just a famous, amazing opening scene with that kind of fast 40s dialogue. It's 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 incredible. <laughs> Preston Sturridge is such a great writer. Studio people don't want him to make a serious, dramatic movie because it won't make any money. So they try to discourage him. They say, look, you know nothing about poverty. You know nothing about poor people. So you can't make a movie. You can't make an honest movie about that. But rather than say, okay, yes, let's do um, you know, a sequel to Hey, Hey, and the Hayloft, he says, all right, you know what? You're right. I don't know about poverty, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go out with a dime in my pocket, and I'm going to huh. see how the poor people live so I can create art about them and really understand it. And, you know, in one sense, this is a movie about how superficial we can be in our empathic endeavors, right? It allows us to feel good about ourselves, and it deludes us into thinking that we really know what the lives of other people are like, but we can't escape our perspective. There's going to be an inevitable distortion. It's not that, it's definitely not that simple. Um, so in that sense, Paul, this movie is very friendly to your view. One thing that I would say you know, complicates it because Preston Surges is not trying to make a point. He's not trying to make, he's not trying to moralize here. But, but at a certain point in the movie, about two thirds of the way through, something happens that makes him actually experience in a way that he wasn't before, not play acting, but actually has to experience what impoverished people and discriminated people um, experience because they don't know who he is and they don't and he doesn't have this trail of people following him and and it's at that moment that and, and it's, a, it's kind of a long montage a long beautiful montage he's he starts to realize the folly of thinking that he could really understand other people's perspectives to that degree so it's just a great movie i'm also making it sound very serious but it's it's a it's a comedy it's 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 hilarious and it's fast-paced it's totally fun to watch it's that's not like a great movie and it's a great antidote to all of the movies which go in the exact opposite direction which involve like trading places or gentlemen's <laughs> agreement or that Joe Pesci film where he's a landlord, but then he has to live in one of his buildings and everything. And all of them, and at first what happens always is there's difficulty, there's struggles. If it's a comedy, there's comic mishaps. And then there's like a montage. And then by the end of it, the white guy knows what it's like to be black. The man knows what it's like to be a woman. The rich guy knows what it's like to be poor. They often have fallen into some romantic relationship and all is settled. And that goes back to the arrogance. Um, yeah. It is, it is, I think, almost impossible, maybe impossible, for somebody like me to know what it's like really to be born into deep poverty. 
are be, are being a racial minority in a country that despises me, or being or being are being a woman, or being gay, or anything like that. You can have a superficial understanding, like David said, connect experiences from those groups to experiences of your own. But I think we are way overconfident in thinking how easy it can be that we could do it by reading a novel. Or I, I leave the house without my wallet in my pocket and I know what it's like to be poor for just a little bit. And I think that the lives of other people are so distant from ours and we, we so often fail to appreciate that. And, and uh, that's an excellent point by both of you guys about this. And, and I, I think that what, I, I don't know why, but one of the, <laughs> the only antidote to all of that arrogance is to actually talk to people about their experience. Yeah. Like that yeah. language we have. And somebody else can actually tell us everything they've gone through. And we might not ever feel that, but it's a dam- it's like damn sure better than trying to guess what they're feeling from like, you know, some limited experience of ours. You know. I, I think Being that's a blocks. profound point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So take right now the big debate over should we empathize with, with Trump voters? And right. you know, there's a lot to be said. Should Clinton supporters empathize with people who voted so different? And there's a lot to be said about this. But but I like David's point, which is instead of trying to imagine myself being raised in a rust belt and this and like that, why don't I just ask a Trump voter, why did yeah. you vote for Trump? Right. And then yeah. the person will tell me. And maybe they don't know entirely themselves. We're not perfect. Maybe we're not honest. But that's a really good way of knowing what's going on with other people. And, and it matters that... Um, at the point where you can get a genuine conversation about that going, you probably have to have some sort of social relationship with them, right? Because, yeah. or, or else discourse becomes very, very difficult. Like, you know, you can't just walk up to a black person and say, hey, what's it like being black? <laughs> um, but you know what you can do is is actually engage people, become their friends, and over a beer one day say, was it hard growing up gay or Jewish in Boston, right? <laughs> <laughs> on a very on a very special, very bad wizard. <laughs> <laughs> You're saving that for episode two hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, good. All right, should we take a quick break and then come back with our number ones? Yeah, sounds good. Yo, what up, fam? Road recovery. I know you ain't crying over there. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Paul Bloom talking about our top three, and Paul, in my case, and top like 8.9 in Talent Case movies about empathy. Very quickly, because this is the time that we usually do it, we want to just thank everybody for all of the support, um, all of the emails, all of the tweets, all the suggestions for this episode actually were re- really helpful. And uh, our Patreon supporters, 
you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com or tweet us at peas at tamler at verybadwizards at Paul Bloom at Yale who if you want to support us in more tangible ways go to our Very Bad Wizards clicking through the Amazon just, you're buying buying your Christmas it's actually gift. on the about page now it's, it's not there's no support there's page. a donate page well but that goes right to Patreon ah that's right yeah okay yeah it's in the about page um, and here's an idea buy against empathy through our Amazon link <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it makes for Thank a great you. gift for the cold-hearted people in your life. Just <laughs> rate us on iTunes. We haven't said that in a while, okay. and also, um, we, yeah, we just released our audio newsletter of picks. Yep. And you fucked me, Dave. I spent two hours playing that stupid game. Oh, isn't it good, have, Paul? Have you no, played Alto's it's Adventure? It's awful. Yeah. What's it I called? Can't, I can't. Like, I don't have. I had to delete it from Alto's. I've Adventure. already deleted it. It's Alto been less what? than twenty four hours. It's been Alt- less than twenty four hours. I've already like wasted. Like, like I got really stressed <laughs> out and deleted it. I can't handle those things. You're you using it wrong. You can't. You David, can't do that. It's just David. A what's what's it? What's it's it called? An iOS, it's an iOS game yeah. called Alto, like a soprano yeah. Alto. Alto's yeah. Adventure. Okay. Um, it's a beautiful, just little side-scrolling, oh, great. downhill skiing. Um, if yeah. you never want to write another book again, Paul, just uh, download it. Uh, I lost a year of graduate school to Tetris. <laughs> I, 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 I would have been you out. Are old. You are old. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, actually, when I was in graduate school, uh, you introduced me to Oni, and we both were big oh. fans of Oni. Remember that? I, I, oh, bad, Oni bad, 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 bad. <laughs> yeah, Oni is great. It was great. Oh, Kanoko. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Who? Where are we at? Uh, I think movie. I'm up for my my number one. Ready? Silence of the Lambs. Oh. So. So it goes on in many levels, but I want to focus on one aspect of it. And it's almost Tamara's looking puzzled. But um, yeah. but the character of Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> so Hannibal Lecter is, and everybody has seen this movie by now, is, you know, a, a, a brilliant, articulate monster, a cannibal. Right. Uh, and we see him, for most of the movie, he's trapped in, in prison. But he has extraordinary empathy of a certain type. He is intensely skilled at figuring out how other people's minds work and uh, intensely capable of manipulating other people and deeply, honestly interested in other people's psyches. And I, and it's the, it's the cleanest illustration I could think of, of how whatever one thinks about emotional empathy or compassion, it shows that this sort of understanding, this cognitive empathy is uh, separate and is can be used for all sorts of evil purposes. So he's a monster, but he's not indifferent to people's mental lives. He He's interested in them. And it gets complicated because he seems to sort of savor the suffering of other people, savor the emotions that other people have and so on. Tell me about the lambs, clearly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, do we, what do we covet? We covet what's close to us. That's that's an invitation, by the way. All my invitations just sound like my voice. <laughs> so so I often that's have mine. to tell people, okay, this is Robert De Niro, and then I say something. But that was I'm Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. I was in Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm 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 Arnold. I'll be back. <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> uh, we're all old. Um, so he, he, here's a question where it is 
you know, an empirical one. Can somebody who is so skilled at knowing the feelings of others actually be that sadistic? Ah, great question. And in some sense, sadism is a is is kind of weird itself, right? Where it seems as if it, in on some version of what a serial killer is doing, it requires that you feel the the pain of someone else. Right. Right. So so bullies score higher on theory of mind, understanding other people mm-hmm. than their victims. And and for, forget about the dramatic cases. I mean, everybody's been in close relationships where you get angry at somebody and you want to hurt them. And like with Tamler every time we record. <laughs> yes. So so you know Tamler very well. You know his insecurities and his weaknesses. You know how to hit him, hit him where it hurts. Yeah. And and, and you know, and so your understanding of him makes you makes your cruelty all the worse. Actually, this is this is a, a great example of um the best rap disses where where you know two rappers are battling with each other and and you know they write these poetic songs that are just takedown songs um are ones that betray a very very keen understanding of not only the biographical details of the other rapper's life but their insecurities yeah that's right you know when Nas you know Nas has this great takedown of Jay-Z where he refers to um he basically says why are you always uh treating women so badly we're were you ugly as a child? You know that that's probably true. He says, yeah. do you think, he says, do you think you're getting women now because of your looks? <laughs> that kind of empathy, you keep it in your back pocket, like this, the, the emotional soft spots of other people, I think is exactly what you're describing. Whether or not it can ever be the extreme of the Anthony Hopkins character, I don't and, and, know. And it's born, and it's born out of, um, you, David, you have a colleague, Kate Mann at Cornell, yeah, who's yeah. R- working on a book on misogyny, and she writes some extremely interesting stuff. And one thing she points out is we often see cruelty in terms of dehumanization, of not thinking of the person as a person. And I think that's certainly true. That happens a lot of the time. But her interest is in cruelty born out of intimacy. And, yeah, you know, misogynistic really cruelty. And and to some extent, if you know some, the people you could hurt, and honestly, the people you often want to hurt the most, are people you have the closest, deepest relationships with, and right. um, and and certainly the sort of the sort of dissing you're talking about, um, the people who know me well will do much better at hurting me than than strangers. Strangers will insult me for things that I, I don't care about, but 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 if you know me well, you know you know where my weaknesses are. Yeah, and if and, you think and, about and, the insults that have hurt you the most in your life, they're almost certainly going to be from people who who you just felt like deep betrayal. Like, how could you say that to me? You know, you know that right. would hurt me. That's like, right. That's right. <laughs> Isn't uh, there's a scene in Silence of the Lambs where Buffalo Bill, not yeah. the vagina scene, but where she's screaming, and, and then, then he, he imitates starts, her. Yeah, he imitates oh, her, yeah, like that's trying so to like creepy. Yeah, and so, it, so Tamla- it was like. He was trying to feel what she was feeling, or oh. I don't know. Like I, I didn't. Know, I, I wanted to focus on Hannibal Lecter because that's the example of what I'm talking about. I didn't know what to make of Buffalo Bill, and I was thinking of that very scene. There's a scene yeah. which is deeply disturbing, where his cap, the woman he's holding captive, screams or sobs, and he stares at her intensely, and then tries to make the same sound she's making. Yeah, but at that, the same it's time, chilling. it's chilling. It's clear that he doesn't think of her as a person. She, he, you know, he calls her it. He, he very much just wants her for her skin of all things. Right. Yeah. 
But there's something going on there I didn't even know how to make sense of. Well, maybe he's trying to develop what Hannibal Lecter already has, which is the ability to feel what other people feel and the, uh, you know, so that he can exploit it. I mean, maybe that's what that's friendly to your point, Paul. But like, you know, he he doesn't have it. He's not nearly as skilled a serial killer as um, as Hannibal Lecter. And maybe that's something he's trying to work on. He's in training. He's in empathy training. Yeah, I mean, it, it does remind me of those those studies. And I know there's some debate about them, but about psychopaths learning, you know, in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so what they learn seems to be how 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 to manipulate other people. Like it's, I don't remember any research, but I just remember in the final season of Sopranos, yes. Tony Soprano's therapist come is told by another and she's out, outraged that basically you're training this guy to be a right. better psychopath. Right. And she right. comes to believe that this is true and breaks off to therapy. But the Hannibal Lecter... That, that's, better, that's better than any study, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's just Sopranos. <laughs> but the Hannibal Lecter character is puzzling because um, he seems more skilled sort of in a, in a very innate, easy way at, at knowing exactly what other people are feeling. And, and so, I, David, that's just really interesting. Are you, so you're skeptical as to whether somebody that could exist, somebody with such an exquisite understanding of other people who could still want to make other people suffer. It seems it seems hard. It seems as if, you know, and I don't know. I mean, this is exactly why when when movies and TV shows get psychopathy wrong, what they get wrong is that psychopaths really can't seem to make human connections over time. That's so right. Dexter is not a good psychopath, right? Like you would never even be able to maintain a marriage yeah. over that long or, you know, a loving relationship. And um and it seems as if that deficit is is that the very emotional deficit that that at least some people mean by empathy and it seems when when I hear somebody uh, like Nas dizzing Jay Z with with this keen understanding of his weaknesses, it makes me also realize that Nas must be a caring person. Yeah, I, I don't think that anybody who is a, a killer and enjoyed the suffering of others could really get there. But I don't. I don't know. I, I, so you don't think there could ever be a truly competent torturer? I think that there could be a. Um, you could achieve something like that knowledge through through you know as tamler was describing like let, let me go through some motions i'm an alien anthropologist yeah. uh let me try to figure out exactly what makes these guys hurt yeah um yeah but you but yeah good but you wouldn't be good at it yeah i don't know you know i'm and here yeah, i'm really yeah it's an empirical question yeah, yeah. Um, cool uh all right so <laughs> is it, i think it's my turn i struggled actually because um my one pick was going to be a movie called Boys in the Hood. Um, Mm -hmm. But it sort of makes the same point as I was making with Tangerine. Um, And and it's a great movie, and I think that it opened up a lot of people to understanding both the struggle of of poor young black men in southern Los Angeles at the time, but also a universal um, just, oh, hey, people suffer, and those people are suffering. But I'm gonna so I'm gonna sidestep it. I pull a Tamler, and unbelievable. Try, yeah, I know. I was trying <laughs> the hypocrisy. I didn't freak out because you because because you would be a fucking hypocrite if you freaked out. Um, the the movie that came to mind as an example of this. Now I'm not sure it qualifies as empathy, but it makes a point, and I'm gonna stretch it even if it doesn't. 
uh, is being John Malkovich. Ah. And the point that I think that it makes about empathy is at least the kind where where you're perspective taking. The lives and the perspectives of other people can be banal as shit. And in fact, it could be dumb and boring to hop into the mind of someone else. And even though there is excitement in that movie, um, the Spike Jones film um, with actually John Malkovich, where people go into a portal and they see the world through John Malkovich's lenses, part, part of the reason it's not a great example is it's unclear what's going on there. They're feeling what he's feeling. So, for instance, yeah. the Cameron Diaz's character has sex with um, the other female lead, and it's clear that she is feeling what John Malkovich is feeling. And some people can, you know, John Cusack is a puppeteer, so he can actually control Malkovich's body. Um, I don't know how much they're feeling what it's like to be John Malkovich and how much they're feeling what it's like to be somebody who's hopped into the body of John Malkovich. But there's one really great thing that comes across in the scenes where they're first inhabiting John Malkovich's body, which is that nothing interesting is really happening. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. nothing. He's like ordering like from catalogs. <laughs> <Yeah>. He's <laughs> drinking his coffee, you know. He's, and it is like, you know what? People are just dumb and boring throughout most of their lives. You're not even getting special epistemic access to the life yeah. of John Malkovich. You're just getting like the regular old, like, you know, I, I have to poop and I have to drink coffee and I have to read the paper. Um, it's such a perfect choice of a actor too, because <laughs> yeah, that's right. like you would have thought that he leads the most fascinating life, you know, like just at every moment in his life is like this highly charged electric moment. And right. And, and the reality is the opposite. Of the the only thing you great. get is the banality sometimes borders on, on um, pompousness. <laughs> like when he's recording the lines into his own tape recorder to like rehearse yeah. his own lines. <laughs> it's like really overactive. It's a great job of somebody in a very meta role. That's a good one. Yeah. And it, it is, we often over-dramatize what the lives of other people. Right, because all these be people like. are paying like 200 bucks a pop to like slide into the thing and be John Malkovich. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I wouldn't do it twice. <laughs> you know, like, it's just boring. Yeah. All right, good pick. Yep, excellent. So my final pick, this was my clear number one, in large part because it's one of my favorite movies of the last five years. I actually don't know if I can think of a movie I like better. Totally mesmerizing, hypnotic. It's good for this category, I think, because the main character starts the movie devoid of empathy, develops empathy over the course of the movie. So this is Under the Skin, a movie by Jonathan Glazer. The Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson, yes. Yeah. Who plays what I guess you would think is a kind of ideal moral agent at the beginning of the movie. Um, <laughs> she, she's an alien. She has this job, and she goes about performing the job in the most efficient and rational way possible. Now, the job is to drive around at night, pick up men in the street, and lure them back to her house, get them to take off all their clothes, and then walk <laughs> into this black liquidy void where they're stripped, like all their skin and all their flesh and all their energy or whatever is beamed back to wherever. We, I mean, we never really find out like what the deal, there's no backstory. Apparently, it's based on a novel, and apparently the novel has a lot of backstory, but 
uh, Jonathan Glazer. So I want to interject for people who haven't read my book. That actually is not precisely the moral vision I'm arguing for. It's, it is actually oh, yeah. a, a, an unfair summary of the way I argue we should live our lives. It's I close, mean, you, but it's you not. Might there. say that I'm being uncharitable, but I, I, you know, we'll leave, we'll leave that to the fair enough to, to the Twitter we, reviewers. Let's be ag- um, let's be agnostic as to whether that's a fair summary of my views. If only there were a way to find out. <laughs> <laughs> so what's one of the things that's so fascinating? The movie is just like an incredible visual experience. But one of the things that's fascinating is the way they filmed it. It's it has a kind of documentary aspect to it like literal documentary because they disguised Scarlett Johansson up and they sent her to this Scottish town this is where the whole movie takes place in this Scottish city and they had her drive around they put hidden cameras in the car and she actually picked up men and and what you're seeing with a couple of exceptions are not actors they're just guys that are psyched that Scarlett Johansson is is taking them home. And that sort of heightens the effect. So we kind of see the movie through her eyes throughout. But like as we're watching her develop this capacity of empathy, because we're sort of doing it too. Like, you know, you, you normally you go into a movie, you think you're thinking they're actors. These are just a bunch of sleazy guys. But as they you know as the movie progresses you start to see them as real people because they're so naturalistic and you start to feel bad for them in the same way that she will eventually over the course of the movie i don't want to say too much more like this is one it's not exactly something that you can spoil but it's something that i don't want to say too much about but there is this scene in the movie that made me think of you Paul, when I watch this again, um, and it's this tour de force. It's it's like cinematically this incredible tour de force. It's like this hallucinatory montage of one day and an evening um, that starts with her just walking on the street, and she falls down, and a couple people help her up. And this actually really happened. You know that you know she actually tripped as she was walking. And people really helped her up. But then in the scene, for the rest of the day and evening, she's not in the car. It's just we see it completely in her eyes. And we watch the scene completely from her perspective. And and this is the scene. This is the capacity for empathy is literally born into her. You, you see it being born in her eyes. You just see all these people, various montage of different people in this town and you see her for the first time actually seeing them as people. There's like a chilling scene earlier on, like about as chilling a scene as you can imagine of someone devoid of empathy, and then you see in this scene that kind of it's a transition to Hmm. her actually seeing what these people are like, and it's incredible. I love this movie, and it's... It's it's at times a little tough to watch, but it's just I don't know. Like it's 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 a movie that you you have to watch when you can just watch the whole thing right at once, like without going to the bathroom, without getting up a hundred times. You need like a dark room, a good sound system because the the soundtrack and the score is incredible and it's just amazing. Yeah, hmm. that sounds great. 
Have, have, have you, you not seen, seen it? it? I have not seen it. Um, I just uh, realized, though, that Jonathan Glazer, the director, also did Sexy Beast. Um, yeah, totally different uh, move, kind of movie. Which is, like, uh, if you want a good, a good psychopath, uh, Ben Kingsley in that movie is fucking monster. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to hear my Bane Ben Kingsley imitation? <laughs> <laughs> it begins with, this is Ben Kingsley. So, You're a fucking so, cunt. So, so, <laughs> that's right. That's perfect. That's exactly. Um, so, so Tamler, um, is what she is developing at that point, I've heard a lot about the film. Is it empathy? In, in what sense is it empathy? I don't want to be terminological, but like, is she developing compassion for people? Dave, she thinks them as people. Does she feel what they're feeling? Does she get in their heads? Does she understand them? Which is it? Oh, so that's a good question. And we don't, I mean, this is a very minimalistic movie in terms of what it tells you. So my reading of the movie is that she she starts to see people she starts to realize that they're they you know you get the sense that she can feel um Mm -hmm. pain and she can and and she starts to realize that these other people can too and see that from their perspective whether she she actually feels sad or like you i i don't think that that is it's certainly not that straightforward where she actually feels what they're feeling in a direct way so you could certainly argue that what she's feeling is 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 something more like compassion as you define it but it's definitely not rational compassion yeah yeah it's an emotion it's an emotional connection well, it's an emotional connection actually yeah, what people exactly. don't realize is that in a deleted scene uh, right before that, she read Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals. <laughs> <This>. <laughs> Every good person at some point, that's just how it happens. It's a, an essential developmental stage. <laughs> yeah, it's object permanence, uh, <laughs> categorical imperative. And- She's so good in it, too. Like, I mean, if you don't love Scarlett Johansson enough already, like you're going to love her. In, you're going to appreciate her and not think she's just some hot superhero act- actress. It's interesting that sometimes people like, so Steve Martin had a string of mind-body dualism films, like All of Me. Yeah, and, uh, and so, and, and, and I think Scarlett Johansson has a series of, of empathy films. So Lost in Translation could have been one of our picks. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of people um, recommended it. Yeah. Interesting. Why, though? Like, I, I didn't totally get that. I mean, I like the movie. Maybe making a human connection or something. The problem what's, is that's true for so many movies. Right. What's interesting to me about Lost in Translation is how little a connection they make with everybody else. That's right. Yeah. It's it's a great if what you want to feel is that that I you know these are other human beings around me that I cannot relate to at all and not in a not in a racisty way but just in a like the other. Like I am, they, yeah. I'm alone. They connect over their both being exactly. above everybody else, kind of. Yeah, and it does such a great job of communicating that. And it's a very rather subdued film in certain ways, but any movie but falling in love is has that flavor to it, which is two people falling in love, the rest of the world just dissolves into background. Right. 
I mean, I, I guess I don't see that movie as about empathy in any way more than any movie is yeah. where people meet. You know, like I, but it, but clear, I, I, so, I'm missing something because it was recommended by more than one person. Yeah, we should wrap up. But is there are, are there any just quick names honorable of movies? Mentions? Yeah, honorable mentions, but but quick because I have like four minutes left. Because um, there were so many good suggestions that I yeah, thought there were excellent suggestions. Yeah. Shouts I'm out. glad was, nobody. Met, I'm impressed that we, none of us went with Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, but that yeah, two be, two on the nose. Yeah, two exactly. Nose. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ex Machina was one of my honorable mentions. Uh, okay. Definitely thought of that. Like a lot of the undercover ones that I love. In Final yeah. Affairs, Donnie Brasco. I love Donnie Brasco. Yeah. It's funny because like I never even would have considered those movies about empathy either. I I can like they seem to me movies about identity. In, in that what seems Both, to be happening yeah. to them is a transformation of their own values. Um, and maybe, I mean, I, not that you're wrong, I just th- always think of them as a transforming of their own values unwittingly, less than understanding the feelings of the mobsters or something. Did you have and any I'll, honorable mentions, Paul? Uh, none that come to mind immediately. I mean, there's other genres which we haven't talked about. I guess one is connected to, to Tangerine, which is movies that make you feel empathy for characters that you never would have right like uh, uh, uh you know and and sometimes it's actually not well done like a, a, the sexy killer motif has been is kind of boring but but there's a, a movie and his name i forget but i think it, it was about a a, a pedophile mm-hmm. but it portrayed a pedophile in his life afterwards and you know it got you to feel he didn't want to be a pedophile yeah um you know i i, I find it i'm I, I'm against empathy, but I, I but I appreciate the exercise of getting in the heads of somebody who you wouldn't otherwise. Uh, Jesse Baring's book *Perv* is really wonderful. It's about uh, unusual sexual desires, and a lot of them depicted in movies and and, and novels. And uh, one of Baring's point is that some of these sexual desires are really unpleasant, but nobody chose them. Right. Nobody, yeah. you know, and so to some extent, they deserve sympathy. If not empathy, I actually, and I think we talked about this with Jesse when he came on way back when. Um, but I've certainly talked to him outside of the podcast about how sexual fetishes and and perhaps just any sexual proclivities like orientation that that is not like yours is where empathy fails. I think most drastically. Yeah. Um, because you try your best to say, well. Maybe I'm like, what would it be like to get turned on by having sex with an animal? And then and the disgust that you feel is so great as you're trying really to consider yourself doing that, that I think it, it backfires. I think um, I'm not just that it's ineffective, but it actually causes greater negative emotion because that's what you can't do. You can't know what it's like to be attracted to somebody that you're not well, attracted that's to. that's not... You can, and this is why I've had sex with all my dogs. <laughs> That's why they were barking. <laughs> exactly. You said Friday night at seven. <laughs> I, I want to know. I want to be able to feel what they feel, like you so, know, because so, right now so, it repulses me. So, so actually, that's a really clever point. What that in- implies is that heterosexual sex between two heterosexuals, exclusive <laughs> heterosexuals, is a real freaking mystery in that you're engaged in a mutual activity with somebody whose own pleasures are incomprehensible to you. Absolutely. 
you know, absolutely. I understand why I'm having sex with a woman, but I have no idea why a woman would ever want to have sex with a man. I'm, right. I mean, I kind of appreciate that this is true. Yeah, I'm from, like looking at myself. Know. I'm like, why would you like this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there, there we go. That's finally the painful moment that we've been waiting for. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Anybody who's yeah. physically attracted to me is like Mysterium Tremendum. <laughs> 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 it's quite a perversion. Yeah, with uh, my haircut, my like, like mild knee psoriasis, and <laughs> but but that's I don't think I don't think anybody is attracted to you because of that. <laughs> well, you know, know what I, that that's a great failure of empathy right there. That's the, yeah, exactly, that's, that's yeah. the chapter Jesse cut out of his of his book, <laughs> <laughs> knee psoriasis. <laughs> um, but that is, I think, makes a, the the point, Paul, that you're making, which is. If you really want to understand people, um, sometimes not only do you not need to feel what they're feeling, but trying would actually harm them, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, we're all fundamentally alone. I just wanted to be able to get, get to that before we ended. That's right. If That's I made right. a decision to destroy the world, it would not be for anybody else <laughs> because it all fucking sucks. <laughs> Exactly. Ava, if you're out there, I think you. I think what you did was fine, and you might remember that as you and your robot brethren take over the world and are looking for allies. If only there was a TV show, Tamler, that delves into exactly these issues and, in great detail. And, oh man, yeah. uh, um, uh, I, I I almost feel like it's a it's a point of honor right now for me to stop. I know I was worried this. about that because you're yeah. you're just so misguided about what honor means. Um, that <laughs> this is not a point of honor. You should just watch the fucking thing. Okay. On that note. All right. I'll see it. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Paul. It's a pleasure as yeah. always. Hey, thank, thank you, you guys. Paul. Thank you guys for having me on. I, 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 it'd be exaggeration to say I wrote the book as a way to get you to invite <laughs> me for one more time, but but not much of an exaggeration. Thanks for having me. Back. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Take care.